Welcome to Footnotes, a history podcast focusing on forgotten moments, people on the wrong side, and those who lost. My name is Mark, and I'm joined here with my best friend, Kevin. Thank you, Mark. That one took way too many tries. That was horrible. It took two tries. It took like three tries. I've, well, seen, you, I, I've seen you record video, and that takes like 17 oh God, tries, so that was pretty good for you. It's the worst. Oh, I'm so bad at this. That's the, that's the intro. <laughs> Our intros are always like that. <laughs> They're always so broken. I like, I like, I like the, it, though. I like that the more we do these episodes, the more off track these uh, mm-hmm. these intros become. It's also so funny to think about, like, I think that the last episode that actually aired uh, was the first one where we started getting really off topic on our intros, mm-hmm. um, which was probably, for the listener, six months ago at this point. It's currently December. It's, yeah. We are currently on, uh, we're, we're at December 30th, 2019, so this is the second to the last day of the decade. And uh, and yeah, we're recording episode, what is this, 10, 11? It's either 10 or 11. Wow. And we have a couple that are going to be released in the next month, and right now we're working on a medieval series. We've already recorded two episodes in the series, so we've and we've released the Watt Tyler Rebellion episode. And we've also recorded uh, an episode on the Black Prince's Chevauchet. Just wait, and you'll learn what that means. Well, they don't have to wait. They've, they've already heard the episode. Uh, yeah, I don't get out of this. Yeah, we're, 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 we're talking at like a man out of time right now. I know, but I'm the one. I read books and talk about history. I don't know how this stuff works behind the scenes. That's fair. Yeah, for the listener, I do all of the everything except for, you know, the, the studying, <laughs> the show, the meat and potatoes of it all. I like meat and I'm, potatoes. I'm more, I'm more plating. But what we're working on right now is a four-part series with some intermediate episodes, a, a real uh, saga that focuses on the medieval Hundred Years' War that lasts from uh, 1337 until 1453, so actually a little longer than Hundred Years' War, with lots of stops, uh, stops and starts. And our, our goal with this series is to identify little narratives, little specific events that happened that helped to paint a picture of the war. And what I hope to do is fill in some of the more nitty-gritty classical history. And what I mean by that is the like dates and times and the big overarching events with some smaller episodes in between that'll be just my voice. Um, so this is episode three, and we are going to be diving into the city of Paris, where on the night of the 20th, November of 1407, a woman was putting her baby to bed on the upper floor of uh, one of one of the many you know five six story buildings that made up old town paris she was trying to put her baby to bed i assume the baby was crying and after she had set the baby down to go to sleep she hears some commotion outside and when she peeks out over her windowsill she sees a man riding on a mule he seems to be fairly rich by the clothes he's wearing, and he has three attendants with him. They are all very lightly armed, which is surprising for how dangerous of a city Paris is in 1407. And as this man's walking down the street, from a house across the street, a mass of men, probably at least a dozen, come swarming out of the house, and attack the man on the mule. Now, just previously, this man on the mule had been 
singing and he was even wearing a hat and it's past the the curfew. He was about as comfortable and relaxed as possible. Well, yeah, he had a hat. He had had a hat. He wasn't uh, wearing he had, one. had a hat. <laughs> These men that swarm after him are screaming, kill him, kill him. And they are very armed. They have axes and swords and half halberds and a wide variety of classic medieval weapons. But no hats. But we do not know whether or not they had hats. That is not something the Chronicles noted. Weren't, you ju- weren't we just discuss- discussing the fact that you're the one who does all the research? I'm not supposed to know if they have hats. You're supposed to know if they have hats. So these men surround <laughs> this rich man on mule, muleback, and begin to hack at him. The woman up on the fourth, fifth story screams, murder, murder, as these men surround and truly massacre this man. They chop off his hand. They slash into his arms, and they bash his head in so severely that his brains are left on the pavement. And by the way, you can go see where this location is in Paris, because it still exists. Can you try on the hat? Should I let the hat go? You should probably let the hat go. Ah, okay, fine. But you can go to Paris nowadays, and you can see um, this area, because this is a very pedestrian view of an incredibly momentous event. The repercussions of this murder have a huge impact on French history, as well as English history, as well as medieval history in general. And the people involved in this story are some of the most powerful and influential people in all of Europe in this time. And the man that was murdered was Louis Duc d'Orléans. Or to say it in English, Louis, I'll keep calling him Louis, the Duke of Orleans. Do you ever think that the rest of Europe must just get so frustrated that so much of what is considered to be European history is just France and England being mad at each other? Like, do you think that Switzerland's ever like, come on, we did stuff to you guys? Well, the Swiss become famous. Is that why Germany became Germany? Germany at this point (laughs) is like 400 tiny little states. Right. That's why they're not important. In the grand scheme of things, they were too divided. But you kind of lead me into the next point is we're talking about French history right now. and We're in the city of Paris for this entire episode. And at this point in time, the city of Paris is about 100,000 people, which is by far the largest city in Europe. It is filled with every single kind of person in the kingdom of France. These are people who don't even speak French necessarily because most of France at this point doesn't speak French. They speak all sorts of little regional languages. Um, Paris is part of you know, the kingdom of France, but as its capital, it's the centralized point of the most centralized kingdom in Europe. That's why the French are so powerful at this point. They have the largest population, they have the most food, they have the most money, and they have the most organized state. They actually have a centralized bureaucracy with one capital led by the king and all of his different advisors, as well as their huge numbers of ministers and just the bureaucracy that goes behind it. Now, that doesn't seem that important, but when you're the only or one of the few nations, really, that has that level of organization, that's a massive advantage for a state. Now, this man, the Duke of Orleans, Duke of Orléans, 
and I'm just going to apologize right now for how badly I butcher the French pronunciation of words. I'll try to just to say them in English as much as possible, though I do know how to pronounce them, but I don't speak French, so I, I'm not going to pronounce them properly. Duke Louis was the brother of the king. He was an incredibly powerful man, as we'll get into. But his murder provides us a look at the medieval era that's going to show us just how modern it is, how much like our modern-day times the past was. At least this is the beginning, as we saw definitely in the Watt Tyler Rebellion, this is the beginning of where there's educated and literate people in great numbers. There are people who have jobs. They actually have like professions where they show up to work and then they go home to their house in the suburbs. That exists. And our actual focus today is going to be less on Duke Louis and at least the nitty-gritty parts on this man named Guillaume de Tignonville. I'm going to call didn't him by his first name. you tell me that the French didn't exist yet? Like the French language? No, the French language exists, but it's a bunch of regionalized languages, like how there's Portuguese and then there's Galician and there's Spanish and there's Catalan in Spain and like Iberia. Well, in France, it's French is only around Paris and the rest of France is a bunch of other little French-like languages. So Guillaume de Tignonville is the, the main character. I'm going to call what, him Guillaume okay, because that's a ask. lot easier to say than Guillaume. de Tignonville the whole time. So we have Louis and Guillaume. And Guillaume is William. So it's like Guillermo, Prove Guillaume, it. William. <laughs> uh, a lot of names in English, French, these different languages are all from this word that becomes William in English. So, you know, I've already touched on the fact that I I just start to experience the the modern twist, the you can recognize the way we live and think already back in 1400, because this man here, Guillaume, is basically a trained professional who rose up in the ranks based on his merit. There's a lot of corruption in this time period, but this is a guy who, he came from a mildly well-to-do family. They had maybe a few small estates. He was a knight. He did fight in medieval battles. Um, But he doesn't have the familial background to get the position he has unless he was truly an, you know, an intelligent and capable guy. And the position he has is, is a job that doesn't really exist anymore. It's now split between many people, but he's the provost of Paris. And that is basically the chief of police, judge, and district attorney of the city of Paris. So he's, he's that police kind of, police chief of the city. Seems like due process wasn't wasn't much of a thing back then. Chief no. of police, judge, and district attorney. But what we'll see is that there are aspects of this you're like, oh yeah, that's very medieval, that's horrible. And then there's other aspects that just look like modern detective stories. Yeah. And that's what we're actually learning about today is a detective story. Um, having that position meant that Guillaume was a very wealthy man. He had a pleasant house out in the suburbs. Um, He had a full-on mansion. He had his own private library, which is a way of indicating uh, just how wealthy he was. Men didn't, I mean, books were extremely expensive. They'd be copied by hand. So if a man had just a bookshelf, one bookshelf, that's a library. And he has that. He's got a wife, he's got a daughter, and he would just go to work and come home in a, you know, almost a nine to five kind of way. Very modern sensibility. Yeah. 
he is a respected and conscientious man. People trusted him. And he, when he said someone would be charged with a crime, the citizens knew he had gone through his due process. His position as that chief of police, the provost of Paris, is the top of a major institution centered in an old fortress in um, the center of France, uh, sorry, the center of Paris. Paris was an expanding city. The original city of Paris was an island in the middle of the, the river, the Seine River that goes through Paris. And it's just a small island that was a fortress that was set up when the Vikings were attacking, you know, hundreds of years before even this event we're talking about. I think this was 500 years before. This little fortified city. And then they expanded it once, put a big city wall around that. They expanded it again, another city wall around that. Moats and ditches. It's a really old, long-lasting fortified city. So where Guillaume works and his, his institution, his base, is what's called the Châtelet which is a very fancy w- word for an old fortress that's now a prison. Fair enough. It's like the Tower of London. <laughs> exactly the same thing. Hey, I did it. I historyed. You know, these are places that have, they've been changed to meet the needs of the you know, current situation. They're no longer a useful fortress. They're not defending anything, but there's still a giant building there, right. so use it. With thick walls, you can just switch what side the locks are on. Boom, fortress to prison. Exactly. Perfect. I love being able to see like, when you talk about the concentric rings of walls of a growing Paris, Rome, I was just in Rome, and it's the same way, where you drive through these very obvious entrances under this giant old wall, and you are suddenly in old Rome. And it's a very stark change. And it's so funny to kind of see like the bird's eye view of these cities. That it's almost like measuring how old a tree trunk is by, by measuring the rings. You can just see the new walls being built outside of the old walls, and it's so interesting. That's a really cool way to think about it because that's exactly how Paris looks. It's a bunch of rings. Yeah, the, the centermost point of the city is the oldest point, and you can just see these rings growing out where this, the buildings get progressively newer. You can see the change, though, as that, that economy with the bureaucracy and the government getting large enough and complex enough with the way that the main source I used, the, the, the author, the way he explains how the Chatelet, Chatelet works and looks. Um, so before I dive into that, the author that you guys should read his book, because it's one of the most interesting and captivating stories that I've read, and it's told in a narrative format. So if you, you don't want to dive into a history book, but you want almost a a fiction book. It's written like that, except it's all true. Read Blood Royal by Eric Yeager or Jaeger. I'm, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Link in the bio or description. Yeah. And you know, it's a quick read. It's my main source. So when I describe things, I'm oftentimes pulling it straight from that guy's book. Uh, really approachable. So another good one. I know I, I tend to d- use these books because narrative history is more interesting to me. There's a couple of other books I read that are very historical, kind of behind the scenes. Unless you really like history like me, stick with Eric Yeager's book. Uh, Yeager describes the Chatelet as being overflowing with paperwork. So we know that governments are inundated with paperwork, but to think that even back then, that was how 
these places were described as just being scroll upon scroll and parchment upon parchment. They're out of places to put these things because everything is being written down. There's a professional group of people that just write all day. They're, they're clerks. They're middle-class white-collar workers living in this medieval society that are keeping track of everything that's going on. They're keeping record of literally every event that they find important. All the laws of the kingdom are no longer oral tradition. They're written down and codified. So that when Guillaume is in charge of this entity, he's the chief of police in the modern sense of the word. He has underlings. And then there's the medieval aspect of his life. The fact that he has to walk around with a full armed bodyguard at all times because he lives in such a dangerous mob-filled city. And I don't mean mafia when I say mob. I mean literal riotous mobs are common and had just occurred within the last two decades or so, where they had to install giant chains that they could stretch across the streets to help handle these mobs and potential invaders. This is an armed and fortified city, and the chief of police, though he has this modern aspect, it's clear he's in the medieval ages. Though we're at the end of the medieval ages, the Middle Ages. He has what's called the Twelve which is kind of a cool name for his major bodyguards and basically the, the constables on patrol, the cops that are in charge and are his main bodyguard. And these 12 are, you know, kind of arranged between respected like Guillaume and straight thugs, just guys that walk around and, you know, will steal from the people they're supposed to be protecting or will go and try to attack some business owner for protection money. So you got that balance of raw corruption but an actual functioning bureaucracy. And that, that's the balance that Sounds it's like hard to... like we have today. It's just so much more overt. Right. Now, Guillaume was woken up by a messenger, a breathless messenger, in the middle evening, late by medieval stands, around 8, 39 o'clock. Breathless messenger is my new band name. That's a good band name. And this breathless messenger came from the Constable of France. Now, that's a higher-up title. That's the guy who's basically in charge of the French military, like the head general, who's usually another guy that rose through the ranks. And this messenger says, you need to come straight to uh, this area in old Paris where the Duke of Orleans has been murdered. The fact that the Constable of France sent a messenger to bring Guillaume to that place and start an investigation of how did this happen should give you a sense of just how important of a man Louis the Duke of Orleans was. I've said already he's the brother of the French king, okay, but we'll get into that in a second. What Guillaume learns when he reaches um, what's called the Rue Vieille du Temple, or the Old Temple Road, is more or less the story I said at the beginning. The Duke of Orleans was riding on a mule with a few attendants, which is kind of... Seems weird for seems somebody weird. who was a duke. Yeah. Um, he was moving from the queen, the king's wife, from her household, where he had just had dinner, and he was returning to his own house, which brought him along this road. And it seems likely, based on the people who had gathered around the body of the duke at the location when Guillaume starts to ask questions, it seems that these men that rushed out and, and attacked him had been waiting in ambush, which gives Guillaume a reason to start to try to figure out 
who are these guys? How long have they been here? Have any of the neighbors seen anything? Who are all these people that are already there when Yum arrives? Because when Yum arrived, when he arrives, the men who had attacked had already fled. They had tried to burn the house down that they had stayed in, but the neighbors next door had recognized something weird was going on and were watching them, so they put the fire out. So they have a full collection of what's inside the house. Um, There's a bunch of eyewitnesses, including the woman that lived up on that fifth or sixth floor. Um, The Duke's attendants are alive. The one is very, very badly injured because he had actively tried to fight 12 men. And he'd been stabbed and slashed many times. He had played dead, which is the only reason why he survived. And he was in a different house, bleeding out. So... Guillaume goes into the house, and the Duke is utterly just disfigured by this attack. And we actually have the parchment that Guillaume either dictated or wrote himself, and it's so detective-like. He surveys the body of the Duke, and he says, and he writes down, item, wound to the left hand, item, wound to the right hand, a slash with very you know, anatomically precise terms of how he was injured. Remember, this is a medieval warrior. He knows how people get slashed and stabbed and brutalized. But the fact that he's writing down with the word item, 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 he's making a list to be used as evidence, to be used as part of a case. You don't, I just, for some reason, I didn't expect to read that from something in 1407. Oh yeah, for the last five minutes in my head, I've just had a, the 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 Law and Order theme song playing in my head, but just like vaguely more French. I don't so know what that means. I think, yeah, I think it's just that's still, it's still that. Dum, da, 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 dum, dum. Yeah, but but there's just I don't know more more brass in it or something. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know what Guillaume was thinking other than doing his job uh, when he was looking at Duke Louis on that table, stretched out, massacred with his brain partly on the pavement partly unfortunately dripping on the floor because Guillaume had received his position because of the duke Guillaume rose up in the ranks as a partisan as a supporter of this duke this was his champion this was the guy he had fought with this is the guy who had sponsored him he owed his life to this duke so he's gonna do his best in order to make sure that the Duke's murderers are found and try to figure out what's going on. Because this is a big problem. Later that night, the next day, um, so the next day, um, I think, I believe it's in the evening, the Royal Council is called. And the Royal Council is truly a family affair. Um, You know, this is the Middle Ages where the private sphere so people's home lives becomes the public sphere. You know, that's ex- exactly backwards to most of modern life, where there are certain jobs that are responsible for the public sphere, but the people's home life doesn't really matter to a big extent. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the private-public separation. Well, back in mid- medieval times... The person who is in charge of the dukedom or the the county or the kingdom, they own the kingdom. Whatever they want to do with their property, because the kingdom is the private property of the king, the dukedom is the private property of the duke, it's theirs. 
It's like it's their house. So the fact that the royal council is this family affair shouldn't be too surprising. And it's made up of almost entirely men, plus Queen Isabeau, who isn't French, she's actually Bavarian, Isabeau, Isabel, or Elizabeth. And what's weird about the royal family at this point, because all these dukes are royal, there's almost all, they're almost all men. There's almost no women. Now, it's not that women weren't born. It's that there's no adult women around. It's a bunch of men. And they're oftentimes foreign wives because there's just not a lot of French women for some reason. And that doesn't have any bearing on the story. It's just something I, I realized. I see for the first half of that, I thought you were just saying that like, oh, the people in power are a bunch of men. And I was like, well, yeah, that's how these things go. But then you're just saying there's just not a lot of women in general. In the royal family at this point, remember this is when the plague is just going repeatedly through the population. I mean, just 10 years before, 15 years before, it had killed a quarter of France again. So that's probably a part of it. But even when the royal families are these tiny families... Well, the Royal Council is made up of a bunch of dukes. And that's where the the title duke originally comes from. It usually is some younger son of the king. Now, the previous king was a man named Charles V. Charles V was an incredibly talented and successful king. At the end of the... Black Princess Chevauchet episode, we really do not present the English nobility and government as being successful. They were defenseless. They wouldn't fight. And when they did fight, they would lose the battle. And Charles V was the king who, after his father fails at the Battle of Poitiers, which is how we ended the Chevauchet episode, Charles V is left in charge of the country after his father is kidnapped and held for ransom. And he has to, as this young man, bring his country back together. Well, Charles V had to deal with not only roving bands of mercenaries attacking the French countryside and the English armies constantly trying to attack them, and he was successful against both, but he had to deal with the fact that his younger brothers were all extremely healthy, intelligent, capable, and ambitious human beings. It's not great when you're the king. But he did a really good job of that, too. He's one of these kings who is completely ignored in history because he didn't rule for a very long time, and he started with such disaster, fixed it, and then died. And what comes after him is the story we're telling now, which is disastrous. But the men in the royal council are his brothers and their sons, or their sons, depending if they're still alive. So they're all dukes of something. So there's the Duke of Berry, who is one of the guys who helped start the Renaissance. He loved art. He's the, the Charles V's brother, so he's the oldest guy. He's the only guy from the previous king's generation, so he's like in his 70s. And he loves art, and he, you just should see some of the stuff he sponsored, some of that first medieval art that if you go to some of the you know, museums that show art history, it's where you start to see people actually looking like people and not caricatures and art, artwork, because there's a guy wealthy enough. The realism and everything. Mm-hmm, there's a guy wealthy enough to pump money into artists to allow them to be professional artists. And by all intents and purposes, he's a very pleasant man. So there's the Duke of Berry. There is the Duke of Anjou, who is who sounds like he is the Duke of Assas to me for some reason. Um, but he is the younger, he's the son of Charles's brother. Then there's the Duke of Bourbon, who is 
on the... I like that one. That one's a good one, yes. Bigger fan of the Count of Scotch, but whatever. He's on the maternal side, so the king's mother's side. And then finally, there's the Duke of Burgundy, who is the younger son of the other brother of the previous king. The Duke of Jazz Flute. <laughs> sure. The reason why I bring up these guys is every single one of them has their own mini kingdom within the kingdom of France in order to be placated by their older brother who was just trying to provide stability and beat the English. Each of these men is given their own little mini dukedom. They, it's usually just a little portion of France. And then they are allowed to have their own household that they start to expand. So they try to marry a woman who is going to inherit titles and things. And each one of them then takes that money they can get. They get some money from the crown. They start to buy up as many castles and little parcels of land. And it comes to the point where the king probably has about as much land as each of these dukes has as well. Individually or combined? Individually. That's... A lot. The king technically is in charge of everything, but when the way it works in Middle Ages is, if I have land, I have the entire kingdom of France, I'm going to say, Mark, you rule this little portion of my lands, and when I need to go to war, I'm going to call on you, and you're going to give me soldiers, and you're going to come fight with me. So that land I give you, you get to roll, you know, that's your land, but I'm technically in charge of it. But these guys are so independent that they don't really have to respond if they don't want to. Right. They don't have to send soldiers out. And it becomes, that's concerning when when your subjects, soldiers, aren't actually beholden to you necessarily. The best example of this in that lack of beholding is the Duke of Burgundy. Now, the Charles V, his younger brother, Philip the Bold of Burgundy, he had done a, a much better job than his younger brother's or his other brothers, I believe he was one of the younger ones, of gaining land for himself. Burgundy is on, it's at the border between like modern-day Belgium, Germany, and France. It's kind of in that area. Modern-day, um, yeah, it's kind of like Alsace-Lorraine, where they've been fighting over forever. He married a woman up in the modern-day Netherlands area, and he was able to like triple his land by marrying this woman. And then through his just astute political connections, his ability to fight wars well, his ability to not be too corrupt, and then be corrupt in the correct ways, he is able to make a full-functioning, independent entity. So though he is technically like you know, the vassal, the duke of the king of France, he is fully independent. Wow, that's impressive. Also, it's amazing how many of our stories on this show are built around... Yeah, but he was corrupt in, like, the right way. That's kind of the way government worked back then. That's very true. It was, But, I mean, it's also true in, like, the panic of uh, 1907. Yes. And we, do, we do a lot of stuff that involves people being corrupt in just the right ways. I also love how often the phrase, oh, and also beat the English, gets sprinkled into French history. Well, they like, fought like, each other for 116 years. Oh, yeah, but even outside of that, they fought each other in a bunch of other times, yeah. too. It's just so funny that you're, like, they're trying to keep stability. And beat the English, which feels like you could just put an asterisk at the end of every single like thing the French are doing. And the <laughs> asterisk means whatever they're, they're doing. They're trying to create great art and beat the English. They're trying to revolutionize trade stuff and beat the English. It's like uh, you could have 
Like, what are we doing tonight, brain? Same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to beat the English. The irony here is that <laughs> Philip the Bold, the brother of the previous king, he, uh, he actually has a little bit better of a relationship with the English, as will be very, very important in about 10 years in French history. Did the English then beat him? Uh, no, he joins them. Ooh. Because the interests of the Low Countries, Belgium, the Netherlands, are more closely tied to England because they had trade with the cloth and wool industries and things, and they had the first real industrialized cities developing then. And that, since they had that economic connection to the English, they're going to, and they're right next to France, they have a reason to be at least somewhat more aligned and cordial with each other. Yeah. And he starts to establish his own kingdom, basically, though he's not, never king. He is basically establishing his own kingdom. So you have those dukes, and the other main figures at the royal council was the queen, Isabeau of Bavaria, who is acting in the interests of her children, who are the future heirs of France, who are all very unhealthy. and Shocking. Are, almost all of them die young. One of them outlives her. One. And that guy becomes the next king. But the other important figure was Duke Louis, Duke Louis, who was the younger brother of the king. And also, the only two kids in the royal family still alive. There was like eight or nine children, and these two brothers are the only ones who are still alive at this point. Their older sister had lived a decently long life, but she had died young just a little bit previously. She had actually married Richard II of the Watt Tyler episode, and that had not worked out. A lot of stuff didn't work out in that episode. We didn't touch on just how badly things ended for Richard II. There's a notable absence. Who have I not talked about? Who is generally very important in a kingdom? The queen. No, we already talked about the queen. The... We haven't talked about the king a lot. The king is absent. Oh, there we go. I nailed it. We keep saying the name, the, the phrase, the title, the king, because mm-hmm. we keep referring to like the land that the king has given away and all that stuff. But yeah, you're right. We haven't actually talked about the king as a personified person. So I talked about his father, right, Charles V. But the king currently is Charles VI, known as the Mad. Ooh, because that's always good. Charles VI is insane. And he is currently absent. And that is the kind euphemism they use when the king was in what is likely a schizophrenic state of delusion. He was almost certainly schizophrenic or of some form of schizophrenia, bipolar, a mania of some form. So... I would like to just use Eric Yeager's words to describe this king. Just to explain what's going on behind the scenes here before we go back to Guillaume's investigation. Okay, So by the autumn of 1407, Charles VI had suffered no fewer than 35 spells of derangement, many of them lasting for weeks or even months, and some for almost a year. A strong, vigorous man, Charles loved to be outdoors in the saddle, hunting or jousting, but during his spells, he sat inside, keeping perfectly still for hours, claiming that he was made of glass and that any loud noise or sudden movement might shatter him into a thousand pieces. At other times, he would shake and scream, shouting at invisible enemies, and running so wildly through his palace that the doors had to be walled up to hide his antics from his curious subjects and prevent him from escaping. In his mad fits, Charles hurled objects, smashed furniture, and struck courtiers and servants. There are reports that he even hit the queen. 
He also refused to change his clothes or bathe, wearing his royal finery to rags until his body grew so foul and his presence so odious that his servants had to overpower him, cut him out of his filthy, tattered garments, and forcibly wash him. I mean, was he a rock star? Aspects of it, I guess. Yeah. But you can see now why this royal council becomes very important, because they're the ones actually ruling the country. Yeah, because the king is made of glass. Now, the king, the glass king, had shown these fits of madness for the first time 15 years before when, actually because of things caused by his younger brother, who I'll get into, he's a very interesting guy, very murdered at this point too, um, the king is going off on a campaign to basically punish one of the other dukes, the non-royal dukes, in uh, what's now Brittany. And as they're riding along in a really hot August day, this is before the king has shown any sort of instability. He's actually known as a, this fun, um, really just enjoyable guy. He likes to go out and do lots of events. Everyone t- t- loves him. His other name is Charles the Beloved. Um, he came to power really young. He, I think he was 12. And he showed mostly signs of being a likely a good king, not messing up what his father had achieved. So they're out riding on to try to get to where they're going to attack. And it's really hot. And there's this beggar who's constantly shouting at the king, you're betrayed, you're betrayed. The beggar's probably just a crazy guy chasing after him. But it starts to unnerve the king. And as they're riding, everyone's starting to get too hot and dehydrated. And they, they are nearing the coast, and they kind of come out of this little thicket. And one of the pages who's holding a lance, basically the king's servant, drops the lance, and it makes this loud clattering noise. And the king goes crazy. And he starts to try to kill everyone around him, including his brother, Duke Louis. And he goes at his brother with his sword out, and he goes to kill him. And what ends up next is almost comical, if it wasn't so you know, sad, is the king is trying to attack his servants. And he actually goes off and chases after his brother. And there's this massive horse chase after the crazy king who's just riding and trying to attack people. They have to swarm him and basically like parry all of his blows until he finally swings his sword so much he breaks it. And they're able to capture him. He goes into a catatonic state for days. And when he comes out of it, he's back to normal. This is not a great king to have. No, it's not. Especially not when you're trying to beat the English. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the English have their own crazy king in about 30 years, so. Perfect. There's another event. It's called the Bal des Ardennes, which is the fiery dance, where after a long spell of not being crazy, um, there's a disaster at a a ball where a bunch of the king's attendants dress up as like wild men. They cover themselves in pitch and straw, flax straw, so they look like they're crazy scarecrows. Um, and they're and the king is a part of them. They're all roped together, so they form this like antic, like an act. And the king's part of it. And luckily, he manages to get himself separated because the men all get lit on fire. And after that, the king's what? Yeah, it, it, what is happening here? I have lost the thread of this. (laughs) I'm just trying to give you the background of what helps to kind of push the king over over the edge. Um, That's a couple years later, Um, and the Duke Louis again. He's there, and at this masquerade ball, a bunch of the king's friends are burned to death in front of him. And from then on, his attacks of mental illness are much more severe and much more prolonged, and he's no longer a functioning king. Basically, anytime there'd be a difficult 
circumstance in his life, he would fall into a prolonged spell of mental illness. And even without those things, he would. But there's a clear psychological It gets cause. worse after all of his friends die in a freak gasoline fight accident. Yes, a little bit of a Zoolander going on, I guess. Mm-hmm. But the royal council is in charge because the king is crazy. And Duke Louis is of extra importance because as the king's only brother and his younger brother, after the Ball des Ardennes, the king puts his brother in charge. He says, you are now the king with everything but the title. Right. And all of these dukes and the queen that are involved there are basically his council. And what happens is there's a massive battle for who gets what from the kingdom. And all of them begin to try to devour the kingdom. They just all try to take as many parts of the royal coffers as they can, which the previous king had done a very good job of making sure there was money, making sure the bureaucracy ran well, making sure that the taxes weren't too bad on the populace. And and we're about to see all of that undone. Exactly, because when these spells of insanity begin, the first major bit of friction is between the Duke of Burgundy and the younger brother, Duke Louis. And they, they fight it out, and there's actually like the kidnapping and re-kidnapping of the, the children of the crazy king. His wife is completely devoted to him, and so she keeps trying to make sure he, everything goes well. But the guy who really gets the benefit of this is the Duke of Orleans, the Duke Louis. He is able to basically put himself as the king. He begins to buy up as many different areas around France as possible. He goes from having a few small little counties, which is next step below Duke, and he ends up having so many. He controls more than half of France. He just completely buys up his own country. He even buys foreign areas. Like he becomes, he buys Luxembourg. Like literally buys Luxembourg. And he does it in this really weird backwards way. He, he uses bullying, extortion, and just raw money to purchase all these things. So he's not, he's not acting like this. So his brother, the king, puts him in charge, acting acting king, whatever, mm. assistant to the regional mm. manager. Regent um, is the word. And uh, assistant to the regent manager, whatever. I like that. Uh, and rather than kind of being the guy who honors his brother and all that stuff, he he goes like full power grab, full kind of conniving. Not great. Not a great dude. But it's more complicated than that because even sure. though he does these things in the aristocrat in the old-fashioned sense – you know, that's how Eric Yeager describes him. He is using this power pretty well. He is managing his territories well. Okay. He is e- extremely pious and he gives lots of money to charity in the churches and makes sure that those institutions are well supplied. Um, he's apparently extremely charming and capable. And he, remember, he's the guy who sponsors Guillaume. He's the guy who makes oh, yeah. that, that man into his position where he's clearly should be in that position. So he's running things really well, but then he's doing all this corrupt stuff behind the scenes. And that's where it's like the corrupt for the right reasons is he's doing that because it's, he, in his head, you can kind of see he's one of those ego guys. He's, he's, I can do this well. well I, I am probably, the brother of the king. I have the power. I can do this. And also once the king dies, he theoretically, he, he's king. He becomes the king. Well, the king has a right? son. 
Oh, so he doesn't become the king. So he's going to be regent for a long time. So he's basically going to be in power. And I think one of the main reasons he wants to take all these territories is because this is his opportunity to gain that power. He was even more complicated than that because by doing this and getting this much power, this is a violent time. That can put a person into a dangerous position. You know, he's oftentimes extorting people to get these counties and these castles. He might rub someone the wrong way. And he had another really bad habit. He was a classic womanizer. And he was flagrant about it. So there are numerous instances. And where did you say he was coming home from the night he got hacked to death? He Spoilers. was coming home from the queen. There it is. Now, there are a lot of rumors that he had... Um, basically taken the place in every sense of right. the king of king charles um i've also read that there isn't a lot of evidence in reality that that happened but he did have a very close relationship with the queen we don't know if it was anything beyond just being her advisor because they were working together yeah. she seemed to get along with him really well she seemed to treat his brother really well and that he was from all in, from, from all angles devoted to his the well-being of his brother he was not evil to his brother. They okay. they were close. They were they really loved each other in that respect. And I, which is not super common for siblings in royalty, that kind of thing. Given the situation, I can see the way. There's yeah. the only two left. He's trying to take over. He basically gets to be well, king. Also, historically speaking, we've seen a lot of examples over history of like, and then he killed his brother, and then he killed his brother's son because that way he becomes the king. It would be pretty easy to just put his brother away in a prison. Yeah. And let him die there, but he didn't. And then not maybe not kill the son, but definitely make make it pretty clear to the son, like, hey, it'd be better if you lived in like somewhere else. Yeah. Instead, so he's not doing he's 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 not doing the full overthrow power grab. He's just trying to secure a place for himself that is above all of the other dukes and whatnot of the of the land. Yeah, and he's doing it in a very conniving way, and he's got his serious faults, but in general, he seems to be a pretty good administrator. I mean, he's his, he's his father's son, mm-hmm. right? In that role, though, he does have a tendency to really abuse his power in terms of how he treats some of the lesser members of society. These other nobles get the, the real short end of the stick because he will go to these various masquerade balls, these parties, these events, and if he saw an attractive woman, he would basically assume that he could take her to his bed. And in many cases, he would actively bribe these lower noble women and there's one instance where he there's a knight and this knight is married to this beautiful woman and he he takes her to bed and then he takes her as his mistress and he actually lords it over the night by bringing that guy in to the room and showing her this beautiful woman with a veil on and then waiting for the guy to realize it's his own wife oh yikes that's uh that's pretty heinous. That's not great. That's I mean you want to you want to get a hand cut off cuz that's how you get a hand that's cut off. That's how you get a hand cut off. There's actually a famous painting of it by Delacroix, who's a classic romantic um artist of that instance and it's like man, you 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 shouldn't do that. That's right. it's middle time. Someone's just going to murder you. Yeah. And you're doing that to a knight, somebody whose job is murdering people. So I think that's more background than I intended to give, but we have a good setup for who this man is, how powerful he is, and also that things aren't happy in the royal council. 
the Dukes of Barry and Anjou don't Anjou don't really seem to have much cantankerousness with their nephews and cousins and things that are all involved. Remember, they're all brother, nephew, cousin to each other. But the Duke of Orléans, Louis, and his now cousin, Philip the Bold's son, John, those two, the Duke of Burgundy and the Duke of Orléans, they are in active competition. So things have been unpleasant for a while. So let's think about this from Guillaume's perspective. He has quite a few different people to think about might be involved. He knows a group of men attacked. So this was an organized event. Okay, this wasn't just some spontaneous you know, robbery gone wrong or something like that. So while he starts his investigation for what, who killed Duke Louis, he knows there's a lot of people who may want to murder. But whoever did it had to have had some form of income. So it had to be an upper-level person in society to, us, to create the a wealth to do that. 12 people mm-hmm. to do this. Also, why is Louis, now that we know everything about like how high status he is and everything, why is he cruising home on a donkey with like, a couple of servants. Shouldn't he be in like something slightly more regal? I don't have an answer to that one. And I was wondering if you're going to ask me that because I just don't know that that's something that totally stands out, but that is well attested. Like we know for sure. That's how he traveled home. He was only had a few attendants and we, a hat. We know he didn't have a hat. Like we know it to that level of detail. Yeah. That's, that's weird. That is so strange. We yeah. know that Paris is incredibly unsafe in this time in history. Right. It's very weird that he would be like just with a couple of attendants on a donkey and that's it. That seems crazy. We also know that the people hate him because he had raised the people's taxes. The exact same thing that caused the Watt Tyler Rebellion happened in France. And they had their own rebellion called the Jacquerie, which occurred before the Watt Tyler Rebellion because the nobility just kept raising taxes. Because they kept needing to so fight He English. knows that this is a thing. He knows he knows the risks, and yet he's still just cruising around. Although it does sound like he has a little bit of a I am invincible complex. Maybe. Like, I mean, the same guy who rides around on a donkey knowing he's hated by the public is the same guy who feels so important that he can show a knight his own wife and be like, hey, I'm sleeping with your wife. And not worry that he's going to get stabbed on the spot. Yeah. Like, he clearly feels like I am too important for anybody to actually take anything out on me because I am I am Duke Louis. When the men come to attack him, the, the, his last words are, stop, I'm the Duke of Orleans. Yeah. Orléans. Yeah. You know, he, I'm he, the brother he, of the king, screams, you can't do yeah. this to me. How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> How dare yeah. you murder me? How dare? <laughs> <laughs> so all these things are going through Guillaume's head because he, he knows all these same things. I mean, he lived through this. This is his patron. And he starts a full investigation. You know, he goes to the Châtelet and he starts his investigation while Louis' funeral procession, the massive funeral procession, takes place. And the people actually, oh, they hate him. For his funeral, there's lots of mourning and crying out and all the the various royal dukes are all carrying the casket and things. And there's a couple weird instances that happen with that. But while that's happening, Guillaume is in full focus to start his investigation. You can tell that he's got underlings because there's various different um, officers and scribes that are sent out to go and gather intelligence, basically, from anyone who would know anything about what happened. And they end up getting quite a few witnesses. And there's two ways that they handle these witnesses in this time period. There's the ordinary process, which is 
modern day police work. And then there's the extraordinary process, which is torture. Classic. But I think I get the gist that Guillaume prefers the ordinary process with how well he does it and how well his, um, the men below him, some of them are the 12, some are just other officers, go about and question people and call people back to the Chatelet, which again is a prison. And these people that they're calling back, they're putting in prison. But it's interesting because prison is different in the way it was used then. It wasn't a punishment. If someone's going to be punished, they're going to be put in the stocks, they're going to be branded, they're going to be hung, something like that. Prison as a, you know, you're removed from, from, from society and put behind bars, that's not how it's used. You either, there, there's actually even four levels to the prison. The Chatelet is a prison, there's four levels to it. And the upper levels are like a hotel. You have to pay to be there. So you're forced to be there. They force you to pay, but then they give you servants and they treat you well and you got a window and you, you just hang out. The lower level... It's like a waiting room. It's more like a hotel. Right. The, the next level down is kind of like a dorm room, but medieval style, so probably a little bit more comfortable than a dorm room. <laughs> but you know, we're talking, uh, there's bars, there's hay on the floor, and the, but it's relatively clean. You get good meals and don't have that to That was nicer than Angstrom Mall. <laughs> Take that, Azusa. <laughs> don't at me. And finally, in the, the Chatelet, at the very bottom are these like funnel-shaped cells where they're so... They're in that you know, inverted triangle, like a funnel. And people would be dropped into them. They can't sit down. They can't lay down. There's vermin everywhere. They're not really fed. And that's where people are sent to die. Okay? So when... Still nicer than Angstrom Still Hall. nicer than... Take that, Azusa. Don't at me. Thank you for that <laughs> random attack on Azusa, Azusa Pacific, right? Yep. University. Yep. So all of these different witnesses I'm about to talk about that Guillaume and his different lieutenants bring in, many of them are actually put in prison. But you can tell that it's, it's not like they're being um, brutalized by this experience, okay? Which shows to me that there's already an established trust to an extent between the populace, especially the more well-to-do populace and their government. So the first thing they want to figure out that Guillaume needs to learn about is who are these guys? And whose house are they in? So why are they there? How'd they get that house? Because maybe we could figure out, you know, follow breadcrumbs and figure out how they got there. So the house is called the House of the Image of Our Lady. This is a big place, okay? It's big enough to have its own name. And it's owned by a family that is led by a matriarch named uh, Madame Fouchier, okay? She has her daughter, her son, a wide variety of other family members who are all in fairly important position. So she's a well-to-do woman and she owns multiple houses and she had an empty house that needed to be rented out. And when um, she is called back to the Chatelet, she doesn't seem nervous, really, and she just explains what was going on. Basically, she was approached a few months previously by a rental broker, I mean, a guy whose job is to just rent places out, and he was looking for a spot specifically in that quarter of the city. Um, they bartered a little bit, and the rental broker brought in a man who's always described the same way, a very tall man in clerical robes. With a, it's a brown robe with a red hood. Now, there were sumptuary laws in this time period, and what a sumptuary law is is people can only dress in clothes for the professions they do. Like, you can't just wear whatever you want. If you are a cleric, you have to dress like a cleric. If you are a knight, you dress like a knight. If you're a butcher, you have to dress like a butcher. 
So the fact that this guy's in those robes means he probably is with the university or at least is some, you know, friar or monk somewhere, which gives him a certain era, era of respectability. At this point, the University of Paris was all clerics, like legally, even though many of them weren't. And it's actually a bunch of um, rowdy frat boys is the way it's usually described. In Just like robes. ancient Paul. Take that, Azusa. Don't at me. Thank you again. <laughs> Comedy rule of threes. Yes, yes. I'm glad it's three. I might drop that one. <laughs> <laughs> the one wrinkle with this is the University of Paris does not like Duke Louis. He keeps infringing on their independence. At this point, the University of Paris is completely separate from French law, and they really abuse that privilege. Um, in, in what way? They will do whatever they want and feel immune. So in lots of ways. Like, sometimes they're, they're, the members of the university, the students, and the professors will commit rather egregious crimes and go to their separate court and be completely exonerated. And the people in Paris are like, how dare you? Wait, hold on. Is the French university like a modern-day Indian casino? There's, in that legalistic sense, yeah, that separate entity, but within the bigger entity. Where, where they just go, oh, we have our own court system. And everybody's like, yeah, but your court systems just get, <sighs> fine, whatever. Yeah, it's exactly that. Whatever. Like that. No happy hour either? I hate you guys. This guy, though, he's described as a very tall man wearing clerical robes. And he apparently had some specific desires for where he wanted to have his house. He, and he's fairly ambiguous about what he's doing there and that struck madame fouchier as odd but well she needed her house rented out um she was kind of myth that she rented out for a lower price than she had intended um and that's kind of it for her and then she basically goes off on her merry way and her um, grandson is brought in and he's you know interrogated in the same way it's not an interrogation it's there's no torture involved they just want to know what this guy knows which is, again, very modern to me. And mm-hmm. he corroborates the story exactly, except he says that the rental broker was a foreigner. He had, a, he had an interesting accent. He was a lame man, he, so he had um, some form of injury or disability with his legs. Yeah. And he was from Lombardy, Lombard, which is modern-day Italy. So that at least helps them to find this guy eventually. And so now they know that this was a conspiracy. Okay, this, though there was clues to that with how many men were involved and the fact that they were right along this, the Duke's route and they... It was well known at this time that the Duke spends a lot of time with the Queen, and he goes back and forth between the Queen's home and his own home um, very frequently. So the Guillaume is starting to think, probably these guys planned this in advance. So let's keep following these leads, because then we can figure out what's going on. Um, the next person that's interrogated is the woman who was putting her baby to bed, but she doesn't really know anything other than basically giving a time of the attack and how many men were involved in the fact that a tall man in clerical robes was leading the attack. So the same tall man that had rented the place was the same guy calling out orders and leading things. And he must have been particularly tall for every single person to call him a very tall man. Very tall man in clerical robes. Mm -hmm. And that's the dude from from Lombard? Yeah. Uh, No, the Lombardi guy is the rental broker who is with the tall clerical guy. Oh, he's the guy guy who facilitated the tall guy renting Mm -hmm. the house. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So at least the tall guy, sometimes you have back problems when you're really tall like that. It's good that he had Lombard support there. (laughs) (laughs) I I really lost like five minutes trying to figure out how to get that joke in there. 
I hope you cut some of that silence. <laughs> it's the worst joke I've ever had in this show. Probably, yes. <laughs> oh, I'm crying. Oh, I'm so... I don't think I've seen Mark laugh like that oh in a God. long time. Oh, that was amazing. I'm so proud of myself right now. <laughs> Kevin has never looked so disappointed. <laughs> and I teach middle school. <laughs> Lombard support. Okay, I got this. After questioning at the Chatelet, Madame Fouchier and her grandson, and learning about this tall man speaking with the woman who was putting her baby to bed and learning the tall man was in charge, Guillaume knows that that's obviously the person that they need to eventually find, but the broker would also be a very useful person to track down. So he sends men to go track down the broker as best as he can, and then he begins to interview another guy who was an eyewitness of the event um, from like the next house over. And this guy was a valet, um, or if you're in England, a valet, was basically like a, a, a servant. Um, and in this era, uh, servants could be all sorts of different things from a really lowly servant to being, you know, what we would think of as like a uh, executive assistant, you know, just huge different levels. And this this man had opened the little window in his door when he had heard the commotion outside and actually peeked outside, um, hearing kill him, kill him being yelled. And he was like, okay, who's being killed? As he looks outside, um, and a man had actually uh, seen him open the door, one of the attackers, and basically lifted his axe and said, shut the door, I'll kill you. And so he quickly shuts the door. And he only came out later with his master and a couple of other people, and they were the first guys on the scene that had told the story to Guillaume the the night of what's interesting is that he says that it's common knowledge that a man named Albert Deschoni committed this crime because Albert Deschoni is the knight who Duke Louis uh-huh. had taken the mistress of it's almost like it's almost like you don't brag to a guy who kills people that you're having that you're having sex with his wife seems like a bad call you know, that makes a lot of sense, you know, just hire a bunch of thugs to, you know, handle this. I like the idea that we're getting into like a, into like a, uh, like a coalition of like, like-minded, we all want this guy dead kind of thing. We've got tall guy in the robes who's mad about infringements on his ability to break laws without consequence mixed with like night guy who's like, I'm mad that I got cuckolded. And mm-hmm. I like this. You just have like a. Like a, it's like Lord of the Rings, except instead of returning a ring, it's just killing a guy. <laughs> Great analogy. There's some other little facts though that start to part, play part in the um, the story. Even the, the the brokers from Lombardy, we don't know if he is really involved or he's just a, a guy who just got caught into a situation that he probably doesn't want to be in. Well, he's also he's also lame, right? Probably not great at attacking a dude coming by on a donkey. Yeah. So he becomes, you know, who is this guy? We need to know how involved he is, or what does he know at the very least. Um, we also know that that tall man in clerical robes speaks very good French. So he is either upper class to the point where he speaks 
good enough French to be passable, or he is French himself. So where does he come from? You know, where 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 does he fit in? Um, well, maybe this Albert de Chani, maybe he did it. So the next thing that has to happen is Guillaume and his various you know sergeants. They basically had the entire city shut down. They had already had the city shut down. They closed all of the gates, which really, really hampers the ability of people to live in a city that doesn't grow its own food. They only have two gates open, and there's guards at the gates. And it's pretty much just only letting supplies in for the most part. Pretty much, yeah. And it's only those people who are known to go in and out of the city to trade their goods. Um, There were town criers at every main intersection calling out what had happened and the basic things that were enforced. And one of them is every innkeeper who had their ledgers of who was in their rooms, they have to present those. And anyone who knows anything is going to be brought to the Chatelet and potentially you know, called on. And they actually completely exonerate Albert Deshani. And so that looks like it should be the case, but it just doesn't. He, he wasn't there in the city. He has an alibi. It, it doesn't seem like he did it. So it's kind of like uh, when, when, when the neighbor dude is like, well, everyone knows that that uh, Alberto Dasani did it. Yeah. Um, it's less of a, like, we saw him there, and it's more of a, like, well, yeah, I would have if I was him. Exactly. Kind of and so that becomes, it gives us a good picture of the difficulty that Guillaume has of figuring out, well, if 400 people hate this man, which one of them did it? Right, which 12 of them did it. Yeah. But with the city closed up like this, it does seem to lend the idea that probably these murderers are still there. They're still in Paris because they have the city closed up really quick. They do know that the men fled mostly on horseback after they tried to burn down the house that they were in and some were running behind them. And they start to learn more and more about what these, who these men were. And it turns out by asking all the different neighbors in the area and then questioning people who were still awake the like next couple of roads over. What did you hear? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this murder happened. There was a bunch of men involved, and they all fled. Well, they had to go somewhere. So what did they do? So when they go and they ask barbers, brewers, weavers, water carriers, all these different people about what did they experience? Mind you, none of these people were supposed to be awake. Okay, Paris has a curfew where once it's a certain time, usually dusk. You go inside and you have to put out, put out all of your lights. And there's supposed to be a night watch that goes around and tells people to put out your lights and go to bed. Really? Yeah. Just in normal times? Not in normal just times. post-murder lockdown mode? In normal times. It was badly enforced. You would think so. And it's the, it's the point where these people not following that rule allow them to be wonderful witnesses. And no one is like charged with anything. Right. Right. It's, it's we're not going to be mad. Just tell us what you saw. Yeah. Like... Will trade information for us not caring that you were out past curfew. So there were numerous instances of these, you know, working professionals who were still awake, um, including there was one where there was a bunch of people all hanging out drinking in a bar with all the lights on, like all the candles lit, you know, and they're just flagrantly not paying attention to the law. Well, they all witnessed the same thing. A bunch of men on horseback ride at full speed down the street, which is not normal at night even with people ignoring the watch. People do generally stay inside. Yeah. And some of, the, some of the other men are running after them. Behind them, the men on horseback are throwing what are called caltrops. Yep. And those are basically spike balls. 
and they're intended to prevent horses from chasing after them. They're all very, very well armed, and every time they see a light, the, the men who are running will go in, declare themselves the city watch, and snuff out the candles. And so each of these different little businesses and bars and things that are still open, they all get a good view, especially the younger, more awake people, of who these men are. It feels like going through and bothering to put out every single person's light really just make, makes you more notable. Because I feel like at night, even, even if you're awake, even if you've got your lights on inside, you're still lights on inside. Out on the dark street, somebody goes, run, ro- goes riding by full speed on horseback, and you go, yeah, a guy went by. But if one of them then comes in and turns your light off, it's like, oh, and one of them had a mustache, was about 5'5", five, five, mm-hmm. 125 pounds, uh, scar on the left eye. It's like, you're really making yourself identifiable by not just going full speed past in the dark. They notice some important details. The two details they notice. One, what the men are wearing, which is really stupid when you think about it. They're <laughs> wearing a specific set of colors. They're wearing blue and green. They're wearing specific kinds of jackets. And those are the colors of burgundy. Not burgundy the color, burgundy the place. Right. Secondly, I know what color burgundy is, Kevin. The horsemen are all riding in the exact direction of the Duke of Burgundy's household. This has got to be false flag, right? Oh my gosh. Guillaume, no, we're not going to get, we won't spoil it, but like, Guillaume, this seems really on the nose. Guillaume sees that and he's starting to go, okay, this might be bordering on national disaster territory right about the same time they pick up the rental broker francois d'arsignac frank and frank that's what francois means is literally a guy just in the wrong place at the wrong time all he did was his job and he actually provides some pretty good information and though he is imprisoned he is not abused he's not tortured or anything in fact as far as i can tell no one's tortured in this entire event which I mean, except for the, the Duke. Yeah, well, <laughs> he didn't have to suffer for that long. Um, but it's interesting that a lot of those innkeepers I talked about and some of those other like barbers and things, a lot of them were actually put in prison for a while, but it was there so they were kept safe and easy to take in for more questioning. So a lot of that is also witness protection. That kind a little of thing. bit, yeah. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, if you're, if you're the Duke of Burgundy and you know that like, Oh, this bar- this innkeeper got asked questions, and he did see one of the faces. Police come back by three days later, and dude's dead. Yeah, or missing, or I mean, there's or obviously has a brand new horse and doesn't want to talk anymore. Either or, right? It, yeah. it's, it's probably more that's the latter one you just said just than anything else. Just pay him off. Hey, what if you didn't remember this? Wink, yeah. wink, bag of coins. What if you were actually asleep when you were supposed to have been asleep? Yeah. It's, it's very hard. Yeah. Some, some I was doubt. following the law. My lights were off, and yep. I was asleep in my bed, resting my head on this giant bag of coins I happened to have had before this. And if it does seem that, you know, the Duke of Burgundy, an incredibly wealthy, semi-independent king, almost, was in charge of this, all of those things are not only possible, they're probable. Yeah. Well, Frank, the rental broker the, from Lombard, it perfectly matches the description given by the, you know, the, the older woman and her grandson, he reveals that he was first contacted by this tall man who spoke good French in clerical robes in like early June. Remember, he, this, the murder is in 20th of November. So this is a while ago. This was an event that was taking a long time 
in the making. He had pestered the rental broker to get a house clearly trying to get close to the Duke and eventually settles on getting a house that is where the Duke crosses frequently, which is showing to us that I, they were casing him. They were following him. They knew exactly what he did. They had observed him long enough to know that if they got a house on that street, the Old Temple Road, they would be able to pick him off one night. And they were just waiting. When they finally do get the house, um, it was just a matter of time. And they, they got it just like a week before they go and actually murder him. The rental broker is pretty much released. As far as we know, nothing bad happens to him. He was just in the wrong place at the right time. And in fact, it becomes incredibly useful if you think about it. If I'm in Guillaume's shoes, I'll probably keep him in prison until I figure out what's going on. But right now, in Guillaume's mind, he has to think the Duke of Burgundy is responsible for this. Now, I mentioned that the Royal Council was not a happy family. Well, it's a little worse than I even implied. So remember... Charles the Mad, the current king, when he gained power, he was a young, young boy. His uh, kingdom was ruled by what's called a regency, which is really common when the king is not of age yet. Basically, an uncle is in charge. Well, that uncle was Philip, the Duke of Burgundy. Mm, So he was acting as king for a while and Mm -hmm. no longer is. And then when his ward turned king, loses his faculties and everything... He doesn't get put back in charge. No. Uh, the Duke of Wellington or whatever the other guy's name was. Duke, Duke of Orléans. Orléans, yep. Yeah. So the king's brother gets put in charge instead. So this dude already had a taste of what it was to be the top person mm-hmm. and doesn't get it back when it's required. And, you know, I, I, the, the politics behind it are excessively complicated. Right. But the simple matter is basically Philip the Duke of Burgundy, Philip the Bold, who again is dead at this point, um, he had spent so much time dealing with his own land that kept him out of Paris so much that Duke Louis, being the king's brother and being just simply royal family, he was there more often, yeah. and they're actively competing. And it gets pretty brutal. I mean, they both come into the city of Paris with armed retinues, you know, that coming in with like their own private armies as shows of strength, back and forth, back and forth. But the Duke that we care about is Philip's son, John. And he gets the, one of the coolest names. He's called John the Fearless. And he is a good one. maniacally ambitious. This guy That's is... less good. He's more like his, um, his uncle, the previous king. Uh, and he's like his father. These are guys who, they just want to be in charge. They know their abilities. They know how to wield power. They're they, very they, Machiavellian in the way that they They are. Like. And they, they are often, they're actually in the book. You know, Machiavelli's the prince, and they, they are sometimes a, treated as good, such good leaders because they're just, they know the power they have by right. It's theirs. It's amazing what people feel like they can do when they go, my blood dictates that I am in charge. Guillaume knows that John the Fearless hates his cousin. Of course, his cousin had relations with John's wife. <laughs> and there was all sorts of problems with that, including... Of course he did. Uh, accusations of rape. Eh, no, I feel bad for laughing. Thanks for that. Ah. But... Let me get my train of thought back. 
John had not had the best experience young as a young man. While his father was establishing his, his domains and Duke Lee was beginning to take over the reins of power, uh, John the Fearless went off on a crusade against the, uh, who would become the Ottoman Turks, just called Turks at that time. And he basically had to watch all of his friends get beheaded in front of him and be ransomed for a huge sum of money. And it's likely that his relationships with Duke Louis had, and Duke Louis' um, family, like Duke Louis' wife's family and things like that, some of these really personal connections that people had back at those times, it's likely that Duke Louis helped make that defeat and that capture and that awful experience. He had a hand in it. So John has a serious gripe against his cousin. And not without cause. And it's with cause. There's all sorts of reasons. There's more than just that. And when he comes to power, his first meeting as the Duke, after his father died, like the day his father died, he declares he wants to murder his cousin. And he's kind of talked out of it, and there's a lot of reconciliation that goes on. The Duke of Berry, their uncle, um, their collective uncle, he actually has them meet up multiple times and no, you know, we're, you guys need to stop fighting. We're a kingdom. We're a family. You guys got to stop doing this. And they, they meet up. How else will we defeat the English? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Things would sour again. And there's that one point where the Duke of Burgundy comes into Paris with an army. And that, that means the queen and Duke Louis have to leave. And they send the, the Dauphine, which is the heir to the throne, um, to King Charles's son, um, both of their you know, nephew, they send him out of the city and the Duke of Burgundy kidnaps the, the Dauphine and brings him back to the throne. And they're fighting over who controls this young, sickly boy who actually dies young and doesn't even become king in the first place. You know, say la vie. There are two Dauphines who die young and don't ever become king in the first place. And it's actually Queen Isabeau's final son who's like 20 years younger than her, his oldest sibling that finally survives. Regardless. Just before the murder of Duke Louis, though, and this is on Guillaume's mind, and must, must confuse him, the Duke of Berry had organized a, a true reconciliation. The Duke of Berry brings in his two nephews, and he has them attend mass together. He has them do long, solemn walks together. And all of this is a pompous show of reconciliation. The men have you know these very cordial and polite talks, and this is just a couple of days before Duke Louis is murdered. Okay. Um, and they even you know, make sure to have a meal, just them two together, which is super rare at this time. It was always people around. They have this private meal together, and then they sleep in the same bed together, which sounds kind of weird in modern terms. Back then, it's, it's a, a show of affection. Men used to be able to show each other affection, mm-hmm. and it was more established and expected. So all of these things, and they, and like they, they kiss, they hug, they do all sorts of different ways to show closeness and familial relation. And then in a couple of days, the Duke is murdered. And so Guillaume is thinking, it's got to be the Duke of Burgundy, but how do I prove this? Because there's a lot of evidence against and for the Duke doing it, but we can really see why he'd want to. Right. But also, we've just put on a whole public display of, look how much they get along now. Yeah. And then dude dies. Yeah. Which means combination of access, but also theoretical lack of motive. But still motive. 
Guillaume can't formally charge any of the dukes because they're members of the household. Right. He can't investigate them. He, he has to ask them. Yeah, it's above his pay grade. Exactly. And just mm-hmm. asking them could get him killed. Mm-hmm. Because if they say, no, how dare you, they can throw him in the stocks. And there's nothing he can do about that. But he has, he's been charged with presenting his evidence. And after all of these interviews, I mean, I, I summarize a lot of it. They call another royal council. And all the dukes are there. Remember, it's, you know, two cousins, and a maternal uncle, and a paternal uncle. The queen's there. A bunch of other lower nobility is there. And they're all just kind of waiting for Guillaume to walk up and testify what's happened. They ask him, do you know who killed the duke? And he says, I, I don't have exact proof. I don't know who these men were. And he gives a little bit of information. And he takes what um, Jaeger calls a terrific gamble. Yeah, it sounds like it. He asks to enter, uh, to quote, to enter the houses of the king's servants, including my own lord's own residences. Perhaps I may discover the truth about the perpetrators, or at least their accomplices. He asks them, can I go look in your houses? Can I go question your people? Because I think it's one of you. Apparently there's a long, very uncomfortable silence. You don't say. But the Duke of Anjou, the youngest and quickest and most intelligent of them, eventually says, I don't have a problem with that since I'm pretty sure I'm innocent. So he says, I'm fine with that. Duke of Berry says, yeah, sure, me too. Duke of Bourbon, me too. And then the Duke of Burgundy apparently looks really sickly and pale. And he starts to get agitated and all twitchy. And he excuses himself and walks out of the room and orders his paternal relatives, Barry and Anjou, into another room with them. Soon as they get isolated, he immediately confesses to them that he had (laughs) ordered the murder. He declares himself uh, possessed by Satan at the moment. Temporary insanity. Classic. We've heard this one before. Yeah, but Satan's not always a part of it. And he admits to the full conspiracy. And the two dukes have no idea what to do. Right. They're apparently sickened to the point of paralysis. What do you do? Isn't he more powerful than either of them? Yes. Yeah, what do you do with that? That's what they try to figure out, and the fallout is very bad. (laughs) Guillaume's role is more or less over at this point, because once that becomes apparent, he's done. The Dukes call off the investigation, and what comes next is very, very odd. And doesn't end well for a lot of people. Duke John flees. John the Fearless feared. Right. And he fled for his life. And some members of Duke Louis' household try to chase after him. He manages to flee at an exceptionally fast pace. He goes like 80 miles in a day 
on a horse. He, like the horse dies under him. He's running away so fast. He's running back to Burgundy. He's like getting a new ha- new horse every day just to keep the pace mm-hmm. up. Everyone else is show is so shocked by what happened that they don't do anything. They don't charge him with a crime. They don't really release the information. It's just done. They try to figure out what to do with this situation. Because Duke Louis, by the way, has a family. He's got a wife. His wife is estranged for obvious reasons. But they need to protect their nephew now. They need to protect what Duke Louis did. They need to prevent a civil war. Because what happens if that's allowed to fester? All the people who live under all the land of Louis and all the people who live under under the land of, of, uh, of Burgundy. That could be concerning. And it becomes a full-fledged civil war. It's called the Burgundy-Armagnac Civil War because eventually the son of Duke Louis was actually more famous for being a poet than anything else, so a capable man. His father-in-law is the Count of Armagnac. Shade thrown at poets there. Jeez. Well, he's... It's funny just because he's this, you know, the son of this Duke Louis. And he's yeah. almost entirely remembered for being a poet. Um, but the Count of Armagnac, by the way, remember back in the Chevauchet episode, yeah, that I useless that count? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's his son. Uh-huh. And so that guy's actually much more bold. It's his son or grandson. But that's what starts to fall into place because of what John does. and what it's, This is what makes him John the Fearless. He runs back to Burgundy. He kind of gathers his wits about him. He gathers an army. He comes right back. He doesn't penance he doesn't show regret in fact he does the exact opposite remember john hated duke louis hated him personally he also hated the way he ran the country he hated the fact he kept pulling over all these different counties and different areas into his own control because remember john was trying to do that too so they're an active competition john though had been cut off from the royal treasury it had been cut off from the royal treasury to the point where it was making it difficult for him to run his own lands and because the populace and the university and the church all pretty much hated Duke Louis and his power-grabbing ways, John had started a propaganda campaign before Duke Louis had been killed. And that's part of the reason they were doing all that invasion, reinvasion kind of things, is John was actively spreading these, this like campaign with like the medieval form of newspapers and town criers just shouting out these terrible things about Duke Louis. And he got the people all riled up against Duke Louis. He got the church to hate him as well. And he called him a tyrant. He called him um, greedy and corrupt. He called him all these probably true things <laughs> to try to get his influence back in the court. And the court, and the, the court and all the bureaucracy is just this back and forth battle between is it going to be Duke Louis' people running this group of the government or is it going to be Duke John's running that group of government. So that's what was going on. But they were still playing that reconciliation game at the same time. Well, when finally he just commits to the murder and Duke Louis is murdered, John comes back and says, you know what? I did this because it was justified. I did it because it was right to murder a tyrant. He says he did not commit murder. It was just tyrannicide. France does have an illustrious history of claiming that it's right to kill tyrants. Of, of the thing that France is good at, yes. killing tyrants is one of them. <laughs> he tries to drop in on some of the royal councils that are trying to figure out what to do with this. 
and they refuse and they won't let him in. Eventually, he has to kind of show up by force and he completely takes over Paris with a full army. And he basically sends Isabeau, Queen Isabeau, into exile. Duke Louis' son, Louis, is sent into exile. Um, John gathers the Dauphine and Charles's family. Charles is occasionally in and out of insanity throughout this. He does play a, a bit of a role in this, but not much. Mm-hmm. And he has this long, apparently multi-hour diatribe given by a professional public speaker justifying all of the reasons why the murder of Duke Louis was a justified killing. But the government is run by Duke Louis' men. When these guys begin to be booted out of their positions, and sometimes in very acrimonious ways, like the the knight who had chased after John was publicly humiliated. Guillaume of Tignoville was really badly publicly humiliated. Guillaume is sent on this like penance trip where he's like, you know, stripped and beaten and attacked and he has to give public penance. He loses his position. He is exiled from Paris. His career is ended by John because he simply did his job yeah. and proved John's guilt. That festers. And those kind of personal problems between these royal family members in an area when the private becomes public breaks the country into two parts the part that seems to be more aligned with Burgundy and the part more aligned with Orleans. The south of France against the north of France. So when the English king, who succeeds in a couple of years, proves to be exceptionally aggressive and talented and very much like the Black Prince, his ancestor, France is actively in the midst of a civil war. Duke John himself is murdered. Fair. By, well, who do you think? The, <laughs> the, the followers of... Yeah. Yeah. But it's in like 12 years, though. It takes a while. Yeah. And so he's functionally in control of the country as various dolphins die. And finally, the, the youngest son, really the only surviving son, only surviving kid i think in the royal family um another charles succeeds that will be our next episode because that's duke charles and joan of arc they become or king charles and joan of arc they've been very famous i'm familiar with the names but that's a momentous murder and we know about it the nitty-gritty of the investigation behind it to that level of detail with that much of an outcome Mm -hmm. that fallout Gosh, it's so crazy, these stories of, like, when you think in kind of generalities about, like, the kind of murders that shake the world, that kind of thing, you think about, like, like the, like the assassination of kings and presidents and that kind of thing. But the most severe ones tend to be these, like, middle-of-the-power structure ones that have, like, the biggest ripples, like, like this one or... Franz Ferdinand and that kind of thing mm-hmm. where you don't think most important person in the world right now and yet they get killed and the fractures caused by it. Those networks, those webs of relationship. Yeah, it's old because 
problems you, that spark. When you knock the top off of something, the whole thing doesn't crumble. It just needs a new top. But when you knock something out of the middle, everything above it comes crashing down. I think a, the, a quote from Eric Yeager will do a good job of kind of wrapping a little bow on this. So he says, as, uh, the, as this is falling out, the king was mad, his brother was dead, and the murderer had fled the city, leaving France without a leader. But the people did not yet realize that a body cannot live without a head, or that the death of one tyrant often begets another. Yeah, you chop off the head and just put a new one on, but if the new head's not better than the old one, it's only going to end poorly. Duke John oversteps his power, and he eventually is killed in the Civil War. Almost half of France is overrun by the English, and the next king has to, like his grandfather before him, put the pieces back together again, which is, by the way, a testament to France for how many times they put their country back together. They always forget the golden rule. A, B, D, T, E. Always be defeating the English. It's the dumbest, dumbest, dumbest thing. (laughs) (laughs) One last point, though. Yeah. Because we talked about this tall man in clerical robes. What happened to that guy? What happened to that guy? Who was he? He ends up becoming this, like, footnote in the story. Well, his name was Raoulet Dunkdurat. Dun- That's the weirdest name I've heard. Donquetonville. Don- Don- His name was Raoulet Donquetonville. Raoul Don Quixote. Close enough. That yep. was hard to say. And he was simply a, a known man for hire. He was a member of Duke John's household. He was one of his knights. He had a very unsavory rep- reputation. He had basically lost some of his privileges in life for being too disorderly and abusive with his power. He was the kind of guy who Duke John would put in charge of a castle, for example. You know, there's the different layers of uh, power in these, these kingdoms. And he had been charged with setting up this conspiracy way, way, way before it actually got into motion. And when he flees the city with all these other men, um, they flee with Duke John. They are able to flee, um, you know, quietly afterwards. Yuchan goes on its own, and they all kind of slowly find their way out. And he's actually well-paid, and he dies a natural death. What? But he apparently lived in constant fear of assassination for the rest of his life, and he can't leave Burgundy anymore because of that. And there's actually letters that survive between him and Duke John, where he says, I mean, I have given you all my support, I did everything you asked me to, and now I'm living the life of a prisoner who is actually free. So he gets some comeuppance, but he, he gets to live a nice long life. And the rest of the conspirators, we have no idea who they are. And they were murderers. The other 11? The other, it's, no it's like 20 oh. total. Like there was about a dozen that actually committed the crime. There was yeah. a bunch of others that were oh, around. Right, right. The numbers always fluctuate. It all, it, all, it all comes down to just John, though. Yeah. And kind of this other guy. But from this story of Guillaume de Tignonville's investigation we get to see a a small pedestrian look at the life of people in medieval france that helps to illustrate all of those nuances that develop into this brutalized civil war and as you can see the perfect welding of medieval and modern 
when personal grievances spill over into these people who are just desperately clinging to the beginnings of that modern life. France falls into utter chaos for decades because of Duke John and the murder of Duke Louis. But in the end, history is filled with these events. Maybe this one was a big one, maybe this one was a small one, but it helps us to, to see how little humans have changed. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. To learn more about the topic we talked about in this episode, you can pick up all of the resources used in the research of this episode. Uh, the links to the Amazon books are in our show notes. Um, if you've got some time, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps the show out. And in that same note, uh, tell a friend about it. If you like this show, like just tell somebody you know in real life. That's probably the most effective way that I share podcasts that I like. Uh, and you can too. Uh, Be sure to follow us on Facebook and on Instagram for places to kind of discuss the episodes, talk to us about the episodes, and uh, I don't know, maybe suggest topics for future episodes if you want to have a hand in that kind of thing. Until next time, thanks for listening, and always defeat the English.